right, let's go ahead and get into Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Um, last week, Jesus continued to challenge us. Um, and this time, he, he dealt with money, possessions, uh, and we learned that really it's, it's more than that, right? And Mark is leading us to these two questions. One of the questions is, you know, the one the rich man asked, what must I do to have eternal life? And the, the 12, after listening to Jesus and his teachings about the rich and, and it's difficult for a rich person to go th- get to heaven as a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and they ask a second big question, which is, then who can be saved? That's the question that, that that's where we need to be. Rather than saying, what must I do? What can I do? How can I do this? We need to realize that it's impossible for us, right? And so this week, Jesus reminds us um, where he's headed, which again shows the very reason as to why we can't do it ourselves. Because the Son of God has come to the earth. And we read in verse 32, somebody read for us verse 32, what does it say? All right, now this is actually the first time we keep talking about this, but this is the first time that Mark tells us exactly where Jesus is going, and he's going to where? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. Something that you will always notice in each of this as well is that they're going up to Jerusalem. And we're going to see next week that, that they're going to end up in Jericho, right? And you're going to see to get to Jerusalem, it's up. It is a, it is a pilgrimage. Uh, it is something that you, you have to go up. Now, something else that we see here uh, that Sonia just read is that Jesus is walking ahead of them. It's the first time we see, see this kind of wording that's, that's used here as well. Now, again, we've done this a lot. We've, we've banked on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah speaks a lot about the coming suffering servant. And that the one who's going to come, he's going to come to Jerusalem, and he's going to be, uh, and, and when he's born, you know, his name is going to be Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. And he's coming to Jerusalem. And the thought is that the old Jerusalem... Uh, is filled with idolatry and rebellion. Um, and, and, and so there's going to have to be something that, that's going to be, uh, to be done here. The other thing is injustice. I don't want to leave that one out because that was a real problem with what has been happening. Uh, Isaiah speaks about And he says that there is going to be this one, and he's going to come to Jerusalem, and and there's going to be this purifying fire. And what's going to come out of that is a new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem, there's going to be peace, it's going, there's going to be justice because the one who's coming is, of course, Jesus, is the Messiah. And, and he's, he's coming, and it speaks of this new Jerusalem, and the one who's coming 
is going to be this king. And this new king is going to bring about all of these things uh, that were lacking in the old. The, the, the very thing that had carried them into captivity, the Messiah is going to come, the suffering servant of God, and he's going to change things. And, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll see more of that next week. But I kind of want you to get the idea uh, of what's happening and, and this, this one who's coming that will be the new king. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah speaks about uh, all of this. He tells us uh, when this will take place. And when he says it takes place is very fascinating. Because when we think about, okay, there's going to be this new king and there's going to be this, this new Jerusalem, this new kingdom that's going to rise up, we think in terms of conquering. They did too. But Isaiah spoke of it as you'll know when it comes because that one who's coming is going to suffer, is going to die. And so that is what they really struggled with. So despite rejection and abuse, the suffering servant, he comes and he walks ahead of them. He is determined. And it's very much like the messianic uh, prophecy of Isaiah 50 and verse 7. But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know I shall not be put to shame. He is determined to go to Jerusalem. And he knows what's there, right? We, we've seen this all along. So Jesus is not dragging his feet to Jerusalem. He's walking ahead. And that word, I want to show you, it means to move ahead in time or space. In other words, the cross is not to be seen as something of defeat. The cross is to see, be seen as Jesus' exaltation. This is where Jesus is going to be enthroned. A lot of people feel like, well, no, 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 it's not going to happen until he ascends to the right hand of God. When you read Mark, and Mark keeps leading us here, you're going to see this very clearly. Jesus is enthroned on the cross. That is absolutely backwards to the way the world uh, thinks of things. And the next time we see that Jesus, is, or this is being used in Mark, that he is walking ahead, it's after the resurrection. Uh, whoops, it's after the resurrection, and I must not have that in here. Uh, yeah, there it is. It's going to be after the resurrection where Jesus is going to go before to Galilee. It says twice, he goes before you. So he's going before them to the cross, and after the resurrection, he goes before them to meet them in Galilee. This is, this is big stuff. However, what is the posture of the, of the disciples that was just read? Yeah, they're amazed and afraid. Why? What are they afraid of? Well, maybe a battle. Definitely, you know, Jesus, if you remember, how did Jesus leave us off last week? Uh, after he speaks about the rich man, he says there's going to be, he talks about you'll receive a hundredfold, but he also mentions that it's going to come with persecution. And he's been trying to tell them this all along as well. So while they don't quite 
yet understand it all, um, they, they know Jerusalem is a dangerous place. They know it's a dangerous place, and they want Jesus dead there. All right, so this is the time that Jesus decides in this march, and while they are afraid, uh, to tell them this. Somebody read for us verses 33 through 34. Okay, this is the third prediction. Now, we, we've seen the first two already. This is the last of the three. And, and each one tells us that the Son of Man is coming. It is the one, he is the one who will be killed. He'll be raised three days. The first prediction gave us a little bit more um, details. But this third one gives the greatest amount of details. And it not only tells us that Jesus is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, but they are going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. And he will be mocked, he will be spit on, and he will be flogged. It is, it is absolutely the most detailed. So here's the question. Do you think at this point the disciples finally are getting it, that what Jesus has got to do? Mark doesn't say here, but what we read next indicates to us they absolutely did not get it. Absolutely did not get it. Somebody read for us verses 35 through 37. Okay. Uh, so here, here's something really interesting. Again, Mark. He continues to lead us and to show us these things along the way through these narratives of Jesus. All three predictions, we find something that follows. There's a contrast. After the first prediction, Peter rebuked Jesus, assuming that his Messiahship entails a privilege, not suffering. And he wants Jesus to not talk about suffering. It's a privilege. After the second prediction, you remember this one? What do the disciples do right after? They have this this argument, this debate over who's the greatest. Because they, again, they see this as an entitlement thing. And now here we have the third prediction. Jesus just pours out more details than ever. And Peter and John, what do they ask for? We want to sit on the right and left hand of you in glory. It's like, it's, it's almost like they're missing everything that, that's being said, but here we see all three predictions are followed by the disciples voicing their ambitions for status and prestige. They're totally missing it. Peter, James, and John, these were the inner circle, right? So two of the inner circle are the ones that go to Jesus and ask for these seats, their brothers. Did they mention Peter at all? The third, <laughs> the third party in the inner circle no and by the way do we do you know who remember who the source is for mark's gospel it's peter peter made sure we got this in here right um and so it was self-serving it was unsympathetic about what jesus had just said about his sufferings and it was also an offense to these others as they're asking for the best seats. Now, let me say this. In Jewish custom, 
Jewish custom is, um, has the place of highest honor in the middle. So the teacher is the one who has the highest honor. He is always to be in the middle. And on his right-hand side, and I know that this is technically his left-hand side, but I'm trying to, anyway, I, I know what my right and left hand is. I just want to make that. But on the, on the right-hand side, that's the place for the greatest disciple of the teacher. And on his left is the lesser disciple of the two great disciples. And if you look at the Talmud, it tells us this. Of three walking along, the teacher should walk in the middle, the greatest of his disciples to his right, the smaller one at his left. So the brothers are trying to, to take this seat of honor. That's what this was. What they're saying is, whoever gets the right-hand seat, and really the right and left, we are the number one and number two disciples of Jesus. We're the ones who have the two greatest honors. And while I think they're trying to honor Jesus, and they do honor Jesus by saying he is the center, he is the, the highest honor, um, they also are looking for their own ambition in that as well. They're honoring themselves. And they want to be crowned as princes with Christ. They also want this ability to rule because these are ruling seats as well. And it's very familiar to Psalm 110 and, and it's a messianic psalm. It's, it's, a, it's a royal psalm where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies my footstool. So all of that is coming out of this. And so James and John, they're lobbying for the right-hand seat. And they still don't understand what it means uh, for Jesus to be the Messiah. And they think with the coming of the kingdom, they're going to get some kind of special privileges. And they envision themselves as elite. And they envision themselves as ruling over others, just like other kingdoms do. And we'll see Jesus is going to bring all of that out as well. But the disciples, they just didn't see Jerusalem as a place of suffering. They saw it as a place of physical kingdom. So they, they see it as, okay, well, it may be tough. We get that from Jesus, but we're going to prevail. So we want to make sure that we have these seats. That's the way all of this is working right now. It's just amazing, isn't it? After the three predictions. Okay, well, let's keep going. Somebody read for us verses 38 through 40. All right, did they know what they were asking for? No. They wanted all the benefits of the kingdom, um, but they just didn't understand, quite understand what this is going to cost. And he uses two metaphors. What are the two metaphors? Yeah, one's a cup, right? Trudy, don't make fun of my drawing. That's an almost good drawing. Um, yes, I'm an artist. Don't worry, I'm not quitting my day job. And, and what was the other one here? Yeah, baptism, right? Uh, and so here we have um, 
you know, these two metaphors, and these metaphors, um, they had, um, I don't think I'm making that any better. Um, but these two metaphors, they represented something good and something bad. So for a cup, uh, it had positive things about it. Of course, we all know Psalm 23, verse 5. My cup runneth over, right? And there are others, the cup of salvation, my chosen portion, and my, my cup. It's something of prosperity. It shows of joy. But it also, and, and most of the time in Scripture, we see it is a thing of judgment. And so judgment is, is what is on the mind of Jesus at this particular point. Uh, and so it's a cup of suffering. And baptism is the same way. We know, we talk about it in a positive sense, but there's also a negative sense. And Second Peter actually is speaking about Christian baptism, but he's comparing it to the flood. And, and there were those who were saved through the flood, but then there were those who were immersed in the flood, and that was the wicked, right? You have Jonah. Jonah, as a, as a means of judgment, he is thrown into the sea. Psalm 42, it speaks of deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves. They've gone over me. Again, it's a sign of punishment. So here he's talking about this cup that they must drink, this baptism that they must undertake, and it is one of judgment. Okay? It is one of suffering. So, And, and let me say this, um, the reason there is this judgment in the first place is why? Because of rebellion and idolatry and injustice and sinfulness. This is why there is judgment. And what it's showing is that Jesus, through his cross, is identifying and, and taking the judgment that belongs to humanity and he, he's he's placing it upon himself that's why the cross was necessary it wasn't something he wanted it was something that was necessary uh, and I think that's that is just really really important as we we keep going through this uh, but he does say well you will drink a cup and you will uh, you will be baptized in a form of suffering, right? But not the one of Jesus. In fact, they were asking for the seating order, right? I want on the right and left hand. And Jesus says, so fascinating here, do you see what he says? He says, that's not up to me. Well, who does he say? What does he say? It's already been prepared. What does that mean, Jerry? Ah, Y'all see it? Do you see it? These are the ones who will be on the right and left hand of Jesus at his enthronement. It's thieves. They're robbers. Right? They're criminals. And those are the ones who will be beside on the right and left hand of Christ. Folks, it's one of the scandalous parts that we find in, in, in this whole passion of Jesus. 
and they and with him they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left guess what that's the only other place where it mentions on the right and on the left of Jesus it's our text and here folks listen we're supposed to see what this is we're supposed to see what this is about it's not this thing about who's the greatest um, it is a place where Jesus is the only greatest one, and he goes and he dies for us. So, Jesus begins his reign from the cross. Um, not what James and John had in mind, right? Because they envisioned Jesus overturning the, the oppression of who? Of Rome, yeah, the Romans, right? And finally, they're going to get to sit on these seats. And But guess what? What happens if James and John are given these places of honor? How do you think they will rule? They're going to rule just like the other humans who are put in these powerful positions, who are going to struggle. Even the best ones, King David. Did he struggle with power and control? Oh, absolutely. And so we don't need another human we need one who is fully human but is also fully god you see this this is why jesus had to come because you put peter and james on there we've already seen how they are right i mean you know we mentioned you know in another gospel they're they're like let us call down fire to destroy this samaritan village because they didn't welcome us they're the ones who are saying look you can't you can't be casting out demons because you're not one of us I mean, we've seen this all along the way, and we're, just in, and we're just using James and John because they're the ones asking for the seats. They all struggle with this, and we all struggle with this. And, and nothing really changes, does it? You look at the worldly governments of today, even our own. Ambition and power and authority is a big part of that. And, and so we've got to be a part of the kingdom of christ and to be a part of the kingdom of christ it is to be about his passion and in romans 8 17 he says and if children then heirs heirs of god fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him so he doesn't leave us in the grave we also realize we suffer and we're glorified but we've got to see it through Jesus. Through Jesus. All right, somebody read verse 41. You got to love this one. <laughs> Anybody shocked by that? The 10 are not happy. And, and listen, don't get the idea that they are being very noble here. Why do you think they're upset? They are indignant. Yeah, they wanted those positions. They've been arguing about it. And now they've they got the jump on them. Well, what if, what if now Jesus listens to them? I mean, this is, they're not real happy about this. All right, so let's keep going. Somebody read verses 42 through 45. Jesus says, you want these places of honor. He says, I'm trying to tell you about my cross. And, he, and then he goes on and he does exactly what we've just been talking about, which is, um, 
Hold on. I ran out of board to write stuff on, so I got to flip it. Woo! It's not the pretty side, but you'll get the idea. So Jesus is showing us about this model, right? Uh, we got the world's model. The world, ah, not word, world leadership. And you see how Jesus describes it there, right? I mean, uh, here we find, you know, they want power, they want authority. These are people who, um, these are people who want, I forgot some of the things I was going to write. Uh, yeah, dominance, right? And how does that measure with Jesus' leadership? Yeah, Jesus' leadership is different. It's, it's absolutely, completely opposite. Instead of being a person of authority, it's a person who is a servant. Yeah. And, and that word servant is someone who waits on, they attend to the needs of others. Does that sound like world leaders? No. Not at all, right? Um, and, and also, what uh, Kurt read as well, is that it's to be a slave. Um, the first and the last, a servant or slave of all. And look at that word. It's a state of being completely controlled by someone or something subservient to or controlled by. So here you are controlled by another. You see the difference. And he says this thing absolutely turns the world system on his head. And he said, but really, what Jesus says is, how well is that working for you, living under the world's leadership? And how they do things. How's that working for you? Is that working out great? Is, think about the greatest countries in the world. I mean, do they have problems? Do they have struggles? Folks, it's there. It's, it's all here. Uh, and so this is to our world. This is as absurd, ab, ab, just as absurd and illogical as a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. This is what we're seeing. This just absolute absurdity that Jesus is keep spewing out about the differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. Uh, and this was more than a principle for Jesus, wasn't it? It was a pattern. It's who he was. And we follow in it. You want to know, this is, this is the way to discipleship. Disciples follow Jesus here. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now notice why we do that. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, we model Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying here. Um, let's go back to that very last verse again. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And notice this last part. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Folks, th- this is so Isaiah 53. <laughs> There's so much here that just, just continues to point to that. Uh, and the many that, are, that he speaks of, the many that he has come to redeem, it is transgressors. Uh, it is sinners, if you go back and look at that in Isaiah. Look at that word ransom, though. It means what is given in exchange as payment for the release of someone held captive. This is a word that was used for people who, um, it was paid for them to, um, to be free from slavery, uh, to be free from, you know, being held captive, um, like a release from a prisoner of war is really kind of what it's looking at here. So the atoning work lies within the Son of Man. That's what we are to see. Who in contrast, who is in contrast to the war, world mongers of, of our culture. And so he freely offers his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to end with these verses. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Look at Romans. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Hear that? In the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk on, sorry about that, walk on according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning. We thank you for the coolness in the air. And Father, we also at the same time, we pray that um, our folks don't get sick from the cooler temperatures. But Father, we're more than that. We're just grateful for your sacrifice of your son. We're so thankful to you, Jesus, for, for coming to this earth and being willing to give up everything, all the glories of heaven, to take on the form of, of your own creation, to do what we could not do for ourselves. And Father, I know that we miss it. I know at times we, we go back into the ways of James and John and we find ourselves in these these narratives and father we just continue to pray that you will open our hearts that will you help us to transform more and more like like your son and so father we we come to you this day and we just ask you to be with us as we worship you father we pray that all our praise all everything that comes out of our hearts this morning will lift up before your very throne and Father, we just pray that, um, that somehow, some way, that there will be just, just a minuscule piece of praise and honor that you deserve. So Father, we come to you this day with new minds and new hearts. And help us, Father, as we prepare to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.